Well, good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Vista. It is wonderful to see you here on this beautiful September Sunday. If we have not met before, my name is Austin. I get to serve here as one of our lead pastors. And if you're joining us for the first time, man, we are so glad that you came today. We know it's hard to go to church for the first time. It takes some guts. So we hope that you feel loved, welcomed, and wanted, that you feel right at home here at the Vista. Uh, Today, we are beginning a new journey, a journey through one of the most important, interesting, complicated, and yet surprisingly simple books in the entire Bible, a book that is like so much of the New Testament, actually a letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Romans. Uh, And as the title of our series indicates, in addition to reading through Romans for the next few months, we're also going to be reading through Romans backwards. Now, we'll start today in chapter 16 at the very end of the letter. Next week, we'll start working back. We'll be in chapters 14 through 15, so on and so forth through the rest of the letter. And I don't know how much you know about reading, um, but reading backwards is usually a very, very bad idea. And so why are we going to be reading through Romans backwards? Anybody ever seen the movie um, The Sixth Sense? Anybody? Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, if you haven't seen it yet, it has one of the biggest, like, end of movie surprise plot twist of any movie of the last 30 years, okay? And I I hate to spoil this for you, but I think the statute of spoiler limitations is up at this point. You've had 30 years to see this movie, people. So if you haven't seen Sixth Sense yet, that is on you. The crowd is with me. Don't get mad at me. Here is what goes down. If you don't want to know, you can go get a little refill on your coffee real quick. But here's what goes down. Bruce Willis, he plays this, this therapist. And in the very first scene of the movie, he gets shot. Bam, he gets shot by a very disturbed patient of his. But then the movie, it, it kind of jumps ahead in time, and we learn that he has this very dysfunctional relationship with his wife where they, like, just literally never talk to each other, also just known as marriage sometimes. Um, he, he befriends then this little, this little boy who's very troubled, and this little boy can see dead people. You remember that? I see dead people. Okay, it's that movie. All right, so that's the movie. That's what's going on the whole movie. Bruce trying to save his marriage and help the little boy who can see dead people. But then at the very end of the movie, we have this, this final scene when this big aha moment happens. And we realize that Bruce Willis, he's dead. He's been dead the entire movie. He was shot and killed in the first scene of the movie. And he's been dead for the rest of the movie. This is why the little boy who can see dead people can see him. Because he's dead. Incidentally, this is also why his wife goes like the whole movie without talking to him. <laughs> because he's dead. And I'm, I'm stealing an observation here, but the best part about the movie is quite obviously the fact that we watch this happen, okay? In the first scene of the movie, we watch, we watch Bruce get shot, bam, bleed out, okay? And then we watch his wife literally just not talk to him for like a year, okay? And it never even occurs to us that he might be dead because it made more sense to us that his wife just didn't talk to him for a whole year. Then it made sense to us that this man might be. We watch him get shot, bleed out, wife not talked to him for a year, and we're all just like, yep, been there. You know what I mean? <laughs> man gets shot, and it's still his fault somehow. She says, his wife's just not going to talk to him. He was shot. Anyways, the point is that the end of the story provides the context that allows us to help better interpret the rest of the story, what came before it. And the same is true of Paul's letter to the Romans. If you've read Romans before, then you, you've probably noticed that uh, you, you probably quit around chapter 11. <laughs> and uh, that's because the first 11 chapters include some, some really dense theological stuff. Because of that, a lot of people have been led to this mistaken assumption that Romans is like Paul's 
final theological dissertation paper, you know, where he like sits down, he channels his deepest, nerdiest self, and he reveals all the mysteries of God and God's ways in the world. Um, But far from being an abstract theological dissertation, Paul's letter to the Romans is first and foremost, like most every book in the New Testament, a letter written to a church. That's what Romans is. To be more specific, Paul's letter to the Romans is a letter that is written to five small house churches that existed in ancient Rome at the heart of the Roman Empire, the largest empire the world has ever seen around 55 CE. And this little cluster of house churches at the heart of the Roman Empire had a very, very, very big problem. Okay? And, I, and I know it's going to be difficult to relate to this. These are ancient people, ancient times, ancient problems, okay? I, I know. But the very, very, very big problem that these five small house churches were dealing with was that they were filled with people. That was it. That was the problem. And believe it or not, these people had a habit of not getting along. Can you believe that? Mm, these ancient people. I know it's going to be hard to relate to all this, but just hang with me. Dave and I will do our best to make it applicable. And so when we read Romans backwards, okay, we have that aha moment where we realize that all the complicated theological stuff in the front half of the book is in service to a very simple goal that gets revealed in the back half of the book, right? Namely, and here's the simple goal. Here's the aha moment. Paul wants these five small house churches located at the heart of the Roman Empire and filled with people who don't get along to learn how to get along. Because the gospel is in jeopardy. Because if they don't learn how to be the scandalously diverse and yet united family that God has called into being in Christ through the power of the Spirit, then the gospel will be rendered unbelievable. The world will not be able to believe in the gospel. Right? And the longest recorded prayer we have of Jesus, John 17, his high priestly prayer, he closes it by saying this. I want you to pay close attention to this. Jesus says, I don't ask on behalf of these alone, that is the disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me, and I'm in you, that they may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. Now, the glory which you have given me, I've given them that they may be one, just as we're one, I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Here it is again. So that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you have loved me. John 17, 20 through 23. So have you ever wondered what it would take for the world to believe that God sent Jesus? Have you ever wondered that? What would it take? Would it take a a sign written in the sky? Would it take the perfect rational argument for the existence of God? Would it take a a Christian takeover of all world governments? Would it take surveillance footage of the resurrection? What would it take? What would it take for the world to believe that God sent Jesus? Well, here's what Jesus said it would take. You ready for this? This is what Jesus said it would take. If my disciples could get along. That, That was it. That's what he said. If my disciples could get along, then the world could believe that God sent me. According to Jesus, the unity of his disciples determines the world's capacity to believe, meaning our unity makes the gospel believable. Flip side of that is that our disunity makes the gospel unbelievable. The world is unable to believe if Jesus' disciples are not united. And you may wonder, why why is that the case? That doesn't really make sense. That shouldn't be true. It makes perfect sense because think about this, y'all. How in the world 
is the world supposed to believe that Jesus is capable of conquering sin, suffering, and death? If he is apparently incapable of conquering the hostilities that divide conservatives and progressives and men and women and rich and poor and white and black and brown people, how in the world is the world supposed to believe Jesus Christ conquered the grave if he cannot conquer the hostilities that exist inside this room in his own family? It makes the gospel unbelievable. Every two years, we, we do this event called Jesus for President. Here's our deal from it. It's, it's awesome. We did it on midterm and presidential election night, so every two years. And the basic idea is that on the most divisive night of the year, you know, we don't, we don't vote and then go home and watch CNN or Fox News and sip on that gross partisan Kool-Aid and celebrate because we won and it's the best day ever or we lost, it's the worst day ever and everything's falling apart. No, instead of that, we come together as a church and we pledge our allegiance to King Jesus. No matter who the president is, I know who the Lord is, all right? We pledge our allegiance to Jesus. The red Republicans and the blue Democrats, they gather together around a common cup of purple communion wine, and we remind ourselves that God in Christ has done something that transcends our deepest divisions. We agree with God that Jesus has overcome even our deepest disagreements, amen? And it's awesome. It's a great way. I hope to see you in in like a year if we're still around here. Um, Well, I was telling another pastor about this recently. And he said to me, man, that sounds like an awesome thing. It sounds really awesome. But isn't it really awkward when everybody's bummed because we lost? And I paused for a second, caught me a little off guard because I was thinking to myself, what do you mean we? Who is this? Who is this we you speak of here? I don't know who this we is. And what became clear t- to me was that he was under the assumption that surely everybody in our church voted the same. I mean, how could anything else be the case, right? We, you know, the we. And so I told him, if we were ever a church where everybody was happy or everybody was sad on election night because everybody voted the same, then we are a church that has failed to be a church. Amen? If everybody's happy or everybody's sad, we're not a church. I don't know what we are, but we're not a church. Because if churches are not places where allegedly impossible divisions are being overcome in Christ through the power of the Spirit, then they ain't churches. Whatever else they are, they're not, they're not churches. And we could say a lot more here, but we'll just, we'll just, we'll just leave it here because it's going to come up a lot over the course of this series. We won't do it all at once. And so if you have your Bibles, let's grab them now and open them up to Romans, Romans 16. When we walk through a long book of the Bible, we always give our church a reading plan. So if you struggle reading the Bible, anybody else? I can struggle reading the Bible. It could be hard. Uh, We make it really easy for you. You go on the Vista app. There are readings for every single day. And then we talk about, on Sunday, what you read about Monday through Saturday. Isn't that really great? You got to try it out. It's awesome. Talk about it in your small groups, too. So Romans 16, very end of the letter. Read verses 1 through 20. Paul says, I commend to you our sister Phoebe who is a servant of the church, which is in Sincrea, that you receive her in the Lord in a manner worthy of the saints and that you help her in whatever she may have need of from you, for she herself has also been a helper of many and of myself as well. There are about to be a lot of names here. I don't know how to pronounce any of them, but I will pretend like I do. Greet Prisca and Aquila, those are easy, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who for my life risked their own necks, to whom not only do I give thanks, but also all the churches of the Gentiles. Also greet the church that is in their house. Greet Apeatness, my beloved, who was the first convert to Christ from Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners who are outstanding 
among the apostles who were also in Christ before me. Greet Amplitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and Stachus, my beloved. Greet Apelles, the approved in Christ. Greet those who are in the household of Aristobulus. Greet Herodian, my kinsmen. Greet those of the household of Narcissus, very unfortunate name, who are in the Lord. Greet Tryphaena and Tryphasa, workers in the Lord. Greet Persis, the beloved, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, a choice man in the Lord, also tells mom what's up, also his mom. Greet Asyncritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Patrobus, Hermas, and the brethren with them. Greet Philologus and Julia, Nereus and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. <clears throat> greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. Now, I urge you, brothers and sisters... I want you to keep your eye on those who cause dissensions and hindrances contrary to the teaching which you learn, and I want you to turn away from them. For such people are slaves, but they're not slaves of Jesus. They're slaves of their own appetites, and by their smooth and flattering speech, they deceive the hearts of the unsuspecting. For the report of your obedience has reached to all. Therefore, I'm rejoicing over you, but I want you to be wise in what is good and innocent in what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Now, Romans 16, 1 through 20. All right, so Paul writes this letter, these five Roman house churches. And as you might have noticed, we know that there are five Roman house churches because Paul mentions five Roman house churches here in Romans 16. You notice that? He said, hey, say what's up to the church this house and that house and that house. <clears throat> then you may have also noticed that Paul sends this letter with someone named Phoebe. If you're paying attention, then you notice that Phoebe is a woman. Okay, we learn in verse 1 that she is a servant of the church in Sancria. That word servant is the Greek word diakone, from which we get the English word deacon, meaning she probably served in an official capacity in her church, some sort of minister, again, as a deacon. Uh, And we need to pause here and understand the enormous trust that Paul has placed in Phoebe in choosing her to deliver this letter. Now, let's put ourselves in the place of these early Roman Christians as they hear Phoebe read Paul's letter to them. Do you think that after you had heard this letter, this absurdly long and complicated letter, it's like three times longer than every other letter Paul ever wrote, this absurdly long and complicated letter, do you think that after hearing her read this, do you think that you would have some questions? Anybody? I would have like three words in, I would have some questions. And who do you think would have been responsible for answering these questions? Paul's not there, remember? Who would have been responsible for answering these questions? Phoebe, yeah. Because in addition to being responsible for delivering the letter and reading the letter, Phoebe would have also been responsible for interpreting the letter on behalf of Paul and making sure everybody understood all this complicated theological stuff. As Scott McKnight puts it in his awesome commentary called Reading Romans Backwards, here's what he says. He says, writers, let's get that up on the screen there, writers like... Writers like Paul didn't hand letters over to schmucks to stumble their way through the letter. Isn't that good? Right, so in other words, Phoebe was no schmuck. She was a leader of her church. She was responsible for delivering, reading, and then interpreting one of the most important letters that has ever been written. Then we're told in verse 2 that she was a helper of many, which is a technical term, which means she was a benefactor which means she was a very wealthy woman who helped financially support Paul and many, many others. All that to say, and this is the technical way to put this, Phoebe was a boss, all right? Phoebe was a boss. And then after introducing Phoebe, Paul starts this really long string of greetings. You notice that? 
Paul greets everybody. There are more greetings in Romans 16 than in all of Paul's other letters combined. He says what's up to everybody. He mentions 26 names in Romans 16. And these 26 names tell us some very important and interesting things. Now, first off, and picking up where we left off with Phoebe, about half of these names are female, which tells us that women were very active in the leadership of these early Roman churches, which was very unusual in the ancient world. We don't have time to tell the whole story, but the most interesting story here is that of someone named Junia. Junia, she is mentioned in verse 7 as being outstanding among the apostles, okay? So here's the short story version. The name Junia is a female name, right? Everybody knows this. There's no debate about this. And so when Paul says in verse 7, I want you to greet Andronicus and Junia, he is very clearly referring to a husband and wife team, just like he does in verse 3, a few verses earlier, when he says, I want you to greet Prisca and Aquila, right? Again, this is very clear, but here's where things get interesting. Paul then goes on to say that Junia is outstanding among the apostles, which likely means that Junia was an apostle. We have to remember that in the early Christian church, what was an apostle, right? An apostle was somebody who had seen the resurrected Christ, was a witness to the resurrection. And so a woman, being an apostle, should not be something that we find particularly surprising because all of the first apostles were women. You you remember the story, right? If you've been here for just Easter, you heard the story. Mary, Magdalene, and friends, they go to the tomb. They think it's going to be, you know, Jesus is going to be there. They're going to anoint it. But, oh, my goodness, the stone is rolled away. There are angels. There's resurrected Jesus. Bing, bang, bong. The women are the first apostles, the first witnesses to the resurrection. And, again, this should not surprise us, y'all, because this is what God does, right? This is God's M.O. This is how Paul puts it in 1 Corinthians 1, 27 to 29. Says God has chosen the foolish things of the world to shame the wise, and God has chosen the weak things of the world to shame the things which are strong, and the base things of the world, and the despised. God has chosen the things that are not, so that He may nullify the things that are, so that nobody may boast before God. Okay. And yet, about a thousand years after Paul wrote Romans, okay, a thousand years later, this huge debate springs up about Junia, a thousand years later. Because people started to argue that Junia, that name, this obviously female name, it must be like the shortened form of like a, a male nickname, right? So someone's named like Junia Robert and goes by Junia for short. You know, like if your name was Elizabeth Bob, obviously you'd go by Elizabeth. That makes all the sense in the world. How does that happen? Well, because women can't be apostles. We all know women can't be apostles because all these layers of bureaucracy had built up in the church. And now there are all these fights and arguments over which roles men and women could and couldn't play in the church. And it's a really sad story of Scripture being twisted to conform to predetermined agendas. You may have noticed in your Bible, Junia's name is not spelled Junia. It's spelled Junius or some other masculine spelling, even though that is not what all the original Greek manuscripts say. All that to say good and reasonable people can disagree about how to best interpret the entirety of what Scripture says about the proper roles of women in the church. It's complicated stuff. It's not, uh, you know, you can't completely harmonize it. It is difficult. But Junia, okay, we're talking about Junia. Junia was a woman. It wasn't Junia Bob. It's Junia. And she was an apostle, just like all the first apostles were women. Because, y'all, this 
is what God does, right? God chooses the things that are not, and God nullifies the things that are because God is on a mission to graciously humble all of us into a gospel family where the least are the greatest and the greatest are the least until there is no longer such thing as least and greatest and greatest and least because all that matters is serving one another in love. Amen? Amen. Yeah. And this comes up again and again and again in these 26 names that Paul mentions in Romans 16. Because, y'all, and this is so cool, in that list of names, there are Greek names, and there are Latin names, and there are Jewish names. There are males, and there are females. There are young, and there are old. Because long before diversity became fashionable, and everybody wanted to talk about it, the early church was living it. Like no other place in the ancient world, early Christian churches were places where people who did not belong together, who allegedly could not belong together, were learning how to belong together because they've been called together by God in Christ through the power of the Spirit of God. And that brings us to the word, the final word we will look at, greet. Right? Paul uses this word greet again and again in Romans 16. It is the Greek word espasomai. And it doesn't mean like, hey, you know, say what's up. It's not what it means. It, it literally means I want you to like literally hug someone. I want you to embrace them. I want you to hug it out. That's what it means. Verse 16, Paul goes even further, and he says, I want you to greet one another with a holy kiss. Right, and so we, we pride ourselves on being very biblical here at the Vista side. So like everyone to turn to their neighbor, whomever it is, and pucker up. And No, I'm just kidding. I'm not, some of you are like, this is the Sunday I've been waiting for my whole life. I don't think it would go over well, though, in the time of COVID. I don't think I would keep my job. Um, so I'm not going to make us kiss each other. But we need to be clear here, okay? We need to be clear on this. This is literally what Paul was telling them to do. In fact, rumors went around in the early world that like orgies were happening in early Christian worship because of the old holy kiss. I kid you not. It's an unbelievable story. But this is what Paul's saying. I literally want you to hug it out and kiss each other to greet one another in Christ. Um, Allison, my wife, uh, her dad, was one of the most affectionate people I've ever met in my entire life. I'll never forget the first time I met him. All right, so we roll up to his house. Allison's 16, I'm like 19, you know, meeting her dad for the first time. He just runs out of the house, sprints out, gives Allison this just enormous daddy-daughter bear hug. I mean, man, it's adorable. And then, to my, to my great surprise, he, he kisses her on the lips. Okay, now you got to understand, I, the Fisher clan, we are not a lip-kissing, as I don't think really any families are, we, we don't kiss on the lips. So this happens, and I think to myself, Oh my, what have I gotten myself in? Am I in Arkansas? Like I could have sworn. I did not sign up for this, you know? So I'm, I'm very weirded out by what's happening. And then he, he finishes and he turns to me and I have this moment where I'm like, oh no. He's gonna try to kiss me on the lips. Am I gonna let him? If the only way to her lips is through his lips, then okay, you know, I will, I will do what it takes, man. I'm ready. <laughs> luckily, luckily, he did not go in for the old lip kiss on me. Uh, instead, he gave me a big bear hug, and he gave me a kiss on the cheek. And we were best buddies ever since then. And that's exactly what Paul's talking about here. And this brings us to the last thing we'll talk about today, verse 17, right? So Paul said, I want you to embrace one another, give each other the old holy kiss. And then, then the tone changes a little bit. Notice this. Paul says, now I urge you, though, I want you to keep your eye on those who cause dissension and hindrances, contrary to the teaching which you learned. And I want you to turn away from them. Not pull them close. I want you to turn away from them. That's what Paul says. 
And this is just an appetizer because we need to be done, and we're going to talk about it a lot through the rest of the book. Um, but Paul, Paul had no patience for people who delighted in causing division. Paul had a lot of patience for a lot of people. Paul put up with a lot of morons. You can read about it in the whole New Testament. Paul putting up with morons. That's the New Testament. But Paul had no patience for people who delighted in causing division. Zero. And I don't think it's going too far to say that a lot of us take great delight in people who cause division. We listen to their shows. We love their talk shows. We subscribe to their podcasts. We eagerly follow them on social media. And y'all, I hear all the time today, you know, our society is being ruined by ah, this person, that person, blah, blah, blah. blah. I, I got to tell you, our society is not being ruined by liberals or conservatives or whoever. Ain't nobody ruining us. No, we are ruining ourselves. Nobody's ruining you. We are ruining ourselves by hostility due in large part to the fact that far too many of us pay far too much attention to people who delight in causing division. That's what's going on. Ain't nobody ruining us. We're ruining ourselves. And this is why the imagery that Paul uses here is so awesome, right? To close the most important letter ever written, the imagery Paul uses is so awesome. Pay attention to it because what does Paul say? He says, instead of like paying attention to people who cause division, what does Paul say to do? I want you to send them packing. You turn away from them. You don't embrace people who cause division. You send them packing for their own good and for your good too. And then instead of pushing away people who you have differences with, what does Paul say? I want you to bring them close, hug them, and give them the old holy kiss. That's what Paul says. Yeah? Let's pray. We got to be done. Gracious God, thank you for the gift of today. We do not deserve to be here. We are not entitled to good things. And yet you have graciously given us everything in Christ. And so this morning we come before you. I pray for my friends, for new friends, for old friends, that you would help us to fully receive this good news of what you have done in Christ. We confess that we have paid far too much attention to people who delight in causing division because it makes us feel good. It makes us feel righteous and self-righteous and all these things. But God, that, that is not what you're up to in the world. You are in the business of creating this scandalously diverse and yet united family. Jew, Gentile, white, black, male, female, you name it, it belongs here. We confess that we have resisted that work in many ways. And instead of resisting it, we want to submit to it. We want to accept it. We want to receive it. And so I pray that you would work in our hearts in these moments. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.